All right, if you'll turn your Bibles, book of Acts, for our Bible reading this morning, Acts chapter 13, we'll begin reading verse 42, we're going to read through chapter 14, verse 7, as we conclude in Antioch, in Pisidia, and move into Iconium. Acts chapter 13, we'll begin reading verse 42, through chapter 14, verse 7. And I will be reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the Word of God. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of the everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconium, and to the surrounding region. And, there, and they preaching, were preaching the gospel there. We have been working through and the development of... Uh, God's working among first the Jewish people in Jerusalem, Judea, stretching into Samaria. Uh, we now really have seen the development of his extension of salvation and the explosion really of the church among uh, the Gentile community, really beginning uh, with Cornelius and uh, the replication of um, what happened among the Jews in Jerusalem with uh, among the Gentiles in Caesarea. Uh, really not for the benefit of the Gentiles, but for the benefit of the Jews, so they would recognize that God had a much bigger plan than just to reach one people with the gospel, but all people with the gospel. And we have seen uh, that development. We looked last week at really the first sermon that we have recorded of Paul's ministry. Uh, we uh, are going to see some others later on of different nature, but in terms of his 
speaking to synagogues, we know what he preached. And we uh, have that recorded for us, and we can pretty much assume that as he went city to city and synagogue to synagogue, this is the essence, this is the nature of what he spoke on. And uh, we saw that last week, much like we saw the nature of Peter's sermon, without hearing every sermon, we heard uh, a representative sermon of, of his first one there at Pentecost. Uh, we have now, we're going to also later on see Paul's defense of his faith before individuals, um, but in terms of preaching to a body of people who give at least lip service to God's word, we now have a foundation for his message. And we saw that last week. And we stopped short, really, of talking about the full results. We looked at the preliminary results, uh, and we saw that many believed, uh, and that belief was culminated by an instruction to continue in the grace of God in verse 43, that uh, this is how they demonstrated the belief, uh, not by uh, some religious uh, ritual, uh, not by praying a sinner's prayer, uh, not really even by baptism, um, but rather by this statement that you are going to continue. That, that faithfulness is really the measure of true salvation. That we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, not just to participate in a single religious ritual, but rather in the transformation of a life. From who I was to who God has made me to be. And so the instruction for those who received the message that Paul preached that day was they followed him and they were persuaded to continue in the grace of God. That that participating in the grace of God is not a single event that I point back to, but a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment reality of my life. That this is how Paul portrayed and taught Christian living. So we now want to move on to see really the full uh, extent of what were the results of this kind of preaching. And uh, we're going to see a very strong contrast here. That uh, the gospel, when well preached uh, and properly understood, can be very divisive. In fact, it is divisive. Because it separates very distinctly men into two groups. Those who will believe it and those who will reject it. And that distinction is not to be ignored, nor is it to be played down. In fact, um, we should glory in it as we're going to see the church rejoicing in that distinction. Perhaps the most troubling in our day is that we have a blasé attitude towards the gospel. That we can hear it and hear it and hear it again and decide nothing. Which means one of two things. Either our hearts are incredibly hardened and dull to the understanding of God's word. And that we simply refuse to let it penetrate our thinking at all. That we are not spiritually attuned to its power and to its purpose. um, Or that we are simply um, disinterested in the spiritual life at all. Spiritual realities. That we have... uh, 
broken ourselves from realizing and recognizing the spiritual element that is part of man. And we've done that through desensitization in many realms, through physical means, um, through entertainment, through uh, psychological means. We have simply become disinterested. We don't want to be among that number. And so this morning, um, my prayer will be that this is a divisive sermon. Not to divide God's people from themselves, but to divide those who believe from those who reject. Let's go, Lord, in prayer as we get started. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. And we thank you for the power of its message. That it, with, for its authority and for the one who will illuminate us to its truth, um, your spirit. And we pray again that he might have liberty this hour to... Um, speak in our hearts and our minds, that we might uh, be responsive, that we might be responsive by faith, trusting in you, and not to put off what needs to be decided today, to not count as ho-hum that which is wondrous. And Lord, we pray for a spirit among your people today that will hear your word and having heard it will mix what they have heard with the belief of their heart and allow it to transform their lives. Lord, we also pray this morning for those who will hear this and reject it. Perhaps by doing nothing or perhaps by opposing it. And Lord, we pray that your spirit might continue to convict and to convince and confront them with their sin and with the power of your message and its truth and we pray that uh, they might one day turn in repentance from opposing you to becoming one of your number. We praise things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our speaker is a guy named Paul. And just to remind you why he is so committed, um, I can't stand still, um, why he is so committed to this group of people. And we're going to see that commitment, how far it's going to go um, in the passage to follow more in chapter 14, is I want to remind you of his history. He is a man who vehemently, violently opposed Christianity. And so when you find his patience and his work for and his dedication to continuing to preach to those, as long as they will allow him to stay in the community, you begin to recognize where that comes from. It comes from recognizing his own history. And the fact that the words like men like Stephen continue to echo in his heart and and the Bible describes it as as pricking him. Just keep poking him. That those words he heard, that those testimonies he saw, those, those countenances of, of those that he threw into jail and uh, chased after and hunted down, uh, just kept poking him. And so now he has an opportunity, instead of being the poked, to be the poker. And so he's going to lay hold of that. And so he is, 
in the synagogue preaching, and a week has gone by now since his first sermon, and, and we have a group that are following him and, and being instructed to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath shows up, and so here we are, Saturday, and he is going to uh, join the synagogue again, and word has gone out. These guys are still in town. They have a powerful message, one that we have not heard before. And that message is culminated uh, really in verse 39. That by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Wow. Here we have been studying the law of Moses. That's what the synagogue is all about. And here comes a, a rabbi, a Pharisee, who comes in, uh, joined with a Levite in their full gown. I mean, they have all the clout that that carries. And they come in with this message that now the prophets have been fulfilled in this person, Jesus Christ. And this deliverance is a complete deliverance. It is something the law could never do because all of you know you couldn't keep the law. The law just pointed to our sin over and over and over again. The sacrifices uh, just over and over again reminded us of, uh, of them, that the shedding of blood, well, now one has been shed for all. And by simply believing in Him, you are justified. That is, you are, you are declared as a righteous one. The law could never make you righteous. It could only make you guilty. The law can't make you righteous. It just can't do it. It can't make you do what's right. We have lots of laws in this country. Our laws far outstrip the laws in the Old Testament. Everyone thinks the laws in the Old Testament are so tough. There's about 600 and some laws in the Old Testament. Um, you have tens of thousands of laws you try to live under in this country. Tens of thousands of them. Um, just read through the laws it takes to drive. You're probably over 600 already. Right? Tens of thousands of laws that you're trying to keep. Has it made anyone righteous? We've multiplied this by a factor of, of 10... A hundred, the Old Testament law. And we can't make anyone righteous because the law cannot justify people. It cannot declare, it cannot make them righteous. But Jesus Christ has come, and this is the message of the grace of God, is that Christ, by believing in Him, can make us righteous. We can inherit righteousness from His hand imputed to us. And the law could never do. And people heard that message and awoke to it. Not just the Jewish people but and the proselytes that would have been on the outskirts and, and some devout Gentiles that would have been outside the building listening at the windows and doors. But word spread throughout the whole town. And pretty soon everyone from Antioch is going to show up and say, well, <laughs> things are happening. we got a guy with a message that's just incredible where we can really become, be made righteous by the hand of God not by an achievement of our own, but because of the achievement of another one, Jesus, who has died and was raised again, who has conquered death and sin for all men. So, we come to verse 44, and it says, Next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the Word of God. Now, I've been preaching for a lot of years, and um, i got to tell you, I know exactly how these guys feel. Um, a guest speaker comes in and everyone wants to come and listen to them because you don't want to listen to the guy you can hear every week. But when you get a guest speaker come in and they're, oh, we got to invite, and we have all these people come in, 
Um, and I can understand this a little bit. It's like, well, they don't want to come and hear us every week, but this is of a whole different nature. For they are coming with a completely distinct message. It is not the manner in which it's delivered. It's not the notoriety of the ones who are delivering this message. Um, it isn't their charisma. It's none of that. It isn't the, the music service that preferences it. None of that is what draws them. It is the uniqueness of the message. In fact, one of the accusations against Paul was what? He's a lousy speaker. <laughs> he just isn't very good. And... and he writes great letters, but and very powerful. But in person, he's he's easily overlooked. And so here he is, ready. But the whole city is drawn not to the people, not to the to the style of worship, but to a, a singular message that is about the grace of God. God wants to give you something you don't deserve and can't earn, and it's free but it will transform your life. And this is the message. They went out and the city gathers together, wants to hear it. And we begin in verse 45 to see a great contrast. We're going to see a divided community, not just once, not just twice, but as we go through the book of Acts, this is going to be the theme, is that there's, their message is a divisive one. It sets a line in concrete, not in the sand, and that we can know whose side you are on. And it will be obvious that this message, when properly spoken by the power of the Holy Spirit, properly understood, again by His working of conviction, um, will put men in one of two camps. And to this day, that is the situation. They will either be of the believers or they will be of the rejecters. Now, can they change down the road from one to the other? Of course. Paul's one of them that went from being a rejecter, one who opposed it, hated that message, to one who received it. And this we'll see evident in Paul. But I want to take some time to just work through these verses. Um, and I'm not going to necessarily do it verse by verse as I typically would do, but all the verses are going to be involved. I want you to sit down and just see the contrast between uh, that the message produces. The message produces these two distinct camps of people. And I want you to see the characteristics of these two camps and as they contrast to one another. And so the first characteristic we're going to find in verse 45, the Jews saw the multitude. It says that they were filled with envy. And the first response that we have to them, and really the envy wasn't about the message. This had really nothing to do with the message. This kind of envy is about the response. They're getting an audience. Their envy isn't toward the message. They have a better message than me. Oh, no. Their envy is toward the speakers. They are getting drawing a bigger crowd than me. And instead of receiving these guys and honoring them, which they did the first Sabbath, based upon the training that they had received as a rabbi and, and, or as a Pharisee, um, the, the situation of Barnabas being a Levite. Uh, so you have a priestly man, you have a, a rabbinic man. Um, and we, they gave him the, the platform to speak with. Now we have envy against the messengers. I want you to contrast that to verse 48 and see how the Gentiles 
responded. The statement by Paul is that we are going to turn to the Gentiles. That's the end of verse 46. Well, how did the Gentiles respond to that? It says they heard this, they were glad. So here we have the ones who have rejected Jesus Christ, and they are filled with envy. The ones who are ready to receive Jesus Christ, they're glad that the messenger is going to come to us. He's going to walk out of the synagogue. And we're going to be able to hear this message. We're going to see it face to face. And we're going to be able to respond to it. And and it's going to come out here to us. And Paul is going to stomp right out of the synagogue by the end of this uh, statement. When he says, we're going to go to the Gentiles, he essentially says, we're leaving. You want the synagogue? You're going to say nasty things. You're going to be violent. We're out of here. Um, God wants us to reach these people too. And while one is filled with envy, one is filled with gladness. But this is in response to the messengers. That unbelievers will receive messengers with envy, and that's still to this day. Whether it is, and I've talked to the teens about why um, it's a good thing when people... uh, persecute you, when they hate you. Um, we, we've been studying in John chapter 14 and 15, and, and we talked about why is it good? Why is that a promise of God and a blessing to be hated by the world? And Jesus says, well, they hated me first, without a cause. In other words, I was righteous toward them, but why did they hate you? Because your presence exposes their sin. By simply being a righteous person, by being a God follower, you expose them. And whether that can, uh, that can be wrapped up in an envy that you have something they don't have, that you have this relationship they don't have, that you have this freedom that they don't have from sin, you have this, this, this quality that they are lacking called righteousness, holiness. Um, uh, that's the world's response. They'll either ask you the reason of the hope that is in you, or they'll envy that and hate you for it. And here, the unbelieving religious people were envious. The largely uh, ignorant, in terms of Judaism fully, um, were glad to receive the messengers. They knew that they didn't have what was being offered and they desired it. The other facet is not only the messenger but also the Word of God. And the Word of the Lord is going to be used here extensively more so um, and we can almost capitalize that to refer to Jesus Christ as the Word. But it's referring uh, to that. Who's going to receive the Word? And look at how they respond to the Word. Uh, Again, we're going to go back into um, verse 45. We saw the multitude. They were filled with envy. What's the next two things? It says that they were contradicting and blasphemy. We approached with the word, Jesus Christ, with the word of the Lord, that message that they are going to be hearing, uh, that Jesus Christ delivers from sin and can do what the law of Moses could never do. When confronted with this grace of God, uh, they are going to blaspheme it, Him. 
They're going to speak against Him, against Jesus Christ. They are going to uh, profane Him in a contradictory manner, um, contradicting themselves, contradicting their own gospel, their own not their own gospel, their own uh, scriptures, the Old Testament. They're going to contradict all that they stand for. Uh, remember that whenever the Jews confronted Christians, filled the Holy Spirit in God's Word, um, the description word that was used over and over again to describe these Jews is confounded. They were confounded. The religious leaders were confounded by a bunch of Galilean fishermen. They couldn't unravel this account of Jesus Christ. They could not deny it ultimately. And so these people could not oppose it in a reasonable way. And with the Scriptures intact, they could not uh, contradict it in a, in a righteous manner. And so they end up uh, contradicting it with blasphemy. They're speaking against the very truths that God's Word teaches, that they have been committed to by their life. This is how unbelievers will approach Jesus Christ. They will profane His name. They will blaspheme His work. And it is all not some neatly put together package that we can't unravel. It is contradictory to itself. And none are opposed in this world. No religious leader has been so opposed in this world, so blasphemed in this world as Jesus Christ. And such is the nature of rejecting His offer of salvation. But let's look at how the Gentiles respond. Go back to verse 48. We saw that they were glad. They were glad to have Paul and Barnabas come out of the synagogue and speak to them face to face. They're glad to receive them, but also it goes on and glorified, and here it is again, the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord was blasphemed by the Jews. The religious leaders were blasphemed, contradicting their own scriptures. And here the Gentiles were glad, and what do they do? They, they glorify the word of the Lord. They exalt Him. They lift Him up as a glorified mean. They, they set Him up in their life and, 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 and are ready to worship Him. This is the early stages of the transformation of Christ that Christ can make in a life is that they turn from, from hating the Word, Jesus Christ, to glorifying Him. So saying, He did all of that for me. And just totally reframe this one. Now they had heard what the religious leaders were saying in the synagogue. Because that came first. They heard that. They heard the contradictions and the blaspheme that was leveled against the word of the Lord there by them. And now, on the outside, having received this, this is not our spirit, this is not our heart. We see the contradictions. We see the, we see the evidence that this is driven by a motivation of envy and um, we are ready to exalt Jesus Christ. We're ready to exalt the Word of the Lord. Not debase it. Not oppose it. We are ready to hear it. We are ready to consider that Jesus Christ did all of this for me. And really, this is the first stages of what we want to see in those that we share Christ with. 
simply a recognition of the wonder of what Jesus has done for them. A recognition that, that this is an amazing thing, that God has provided a lamb to become sin for me. And to elevate that sacrifice and to recognize it, its, its greatness and its efficiency and sufficiency. So while religious unbelievers were blaspheming and contradicting pagan Gentiles were exalting the word of the Lord. Glorifying Him. Well, it goes on and it says in verse 45, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. This opposition is against the message, against the things spoken. And they opposed it. They were going to run up against it. They were going to speak against it every turn. They were going to speak against Jesus Christ, but certainly the whole premise of his message, is, as we have read through what he preached the week before, um, they uh, were ready to oppose it. They were ready to, to uh, counter his message. And you're going to encounter people who, when they hear that message, are going to simply oppose it and stiffen their back and stiffen their heart and say, I don't want to hear that. And yet they must hear it. They're going to say, no, that's not the truth. or that's, And they'll say horrible things about our Savior and His work and about the Christian community. And unfortunately, too many of the things they rehearsed about the Christian community are true because the Christian community hasn't been very Christian for a long time. So they respond by opposing everything Paul said. Paul says something, they're going to contradict it. They're going to be against it. They're, they're opposite it. When we come to verse 48, we have a very different response. It says that as many as, and we have a phrase I want to address here in a little bit, had been appointed to eternal life, believed. These people believed. They believed the message. While one opposes it, one group believes it. And fundamentally, that is the line to define who you are. For if you believe the message of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel, it will so fully transform your life that the Bible goes so far to say you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. You are a completely different person. That's why we use the term born again that Christ uses. It's not that, uh, and, and it's been abused, I know, in our day. And, but, but that's where it comes from, that you are, you are transformed. You are a different kind of person and you can't go back. There's, why would I ever go back? So they have believed the message and it has redefined their lives. It has redefined who they are. And it has redefined every relationship. And it's time for us to recognize that if we claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, that we must have this defining us. That every relationship in our life is defined by Christ. Either they are rejectors or ready to receive Him. That's how I have to relate to everyone. I either have to relate to you that you are someone who needs to hear the gospel or you're a brother in Christ and we should be living lives in obedience to God's word. 
It should be that clear. And that should define every relationship. Is whether or not they share a relationship with Jesus Christ. We then come to this aspect of the eternal life that was spoken of. We read it there in verse 48, but I want to back up verse 46. Paul and Barnabas respond to the opposition, and um, they're not going to give up. They are not going to. Uh, they are going to go to the Gentiles, but they are recognizing that at this point, where there is blasphemy involved, where they are are really drawing near to violence, and they will be getting near to violence, become violent here shortly. Um, we see this statement in verse 46. Paul and Barnabas grew bold. I love that because remember, uh, Paul wasn't a great speaker. But he became bold and he recognized this is God's evidencing to us what he told me on the road to Damascus. That I need to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So here's his statement. Speaking it to the ones who are opposing him. It was necessary. It was needful. We, we needed to bring this message to you that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So we find that in Paul's view, when he is dealing with unbelievers, um, he's saying, you're making this choice of judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life. That is, you are uh, simply discounting the eternal factors involved here. And, and you don't want to hear the message. And at some point when people don't want to hear the message, it's time to stop giving it to them. Um, one of the things we, at our deacon's retreat, I share with them that in Proverbs it says, rebuke one, rebuke a wise, a wise man, he'll become wiser. Um, he'll appreciate it. If you rebuke a fuel, a, a fuel, a fool, you're just entering into folly. Rebuke him, but don't keep rebuking him. You have to stop at some point. Paul here says, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. So in, in reference to eternal life, they view themselves as unworthy. That is, we're not going to pursue it. We're not interested in your offer of eternal life. Um, I'm living for today. I'm living for my audience. I'm living to guard my following in the synagogue. I'm not interested in those those other things like eternal life what's that all about and we will still encounter that among believers today I don't care about eternal life I just care about being happy today can't really pursue that very easily without um, and so we hide and we disguise it and we get engaged in entertainment and substance abuse and everything to uh, give us cheap thrills today and to keep our mind off of this very important concept that there is an immaterial, there is an eternal aspect to man. And they don't want to think about it. These guys were trading eternal life for popularity. They wanted to stay the best team in town. They wanted to stay in control of their synagogue. They wanted to have the following. They don't want to see other people getting more of a following and hearing than they. They're trading eternal life for it. 
that didn't even want to talk about eternal things. Let's look at how, in that verse, again, 48, how their disposition was towards eternal life. It says, As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, that's a unfortunate <laughs> translation of a Greek word. Because it sounds like someone had appointed these people to believe. And many of our Calvinist friends use this verse, one of the verses they'll use. Um, I want you to notice that nowhere does it say that God appointed them to believe. That they were somehow appointed in eternity past to believe. Um, the Greek word translated here um, really involves that they were predisposed to eternal life. That is, they were interested in, they were, they were wanting to pursue after eternal life. That there was something distinct in them that while these others were counting themselves unworthy, they didn't even want, they didn't value eternal life. These saw eternal life as something to pursue. And they were predisposed to eternal life. They, they saw that as, as an incredible offer. Eternal life? Kind of like the Samaritan woman at the well. Give me some of that water to drink so that I can never, never be thirsty again. Of course, she was thinking physically, Christ speaking spiritually. She figures that out down the road. Um, but these people were, were predisposed to eternal life. That is, they were, they were already valuing, they're recognizing that this, this is immeasurable compared to anything that we might endure or suffer in this world. That when God is offering you eternal life, what, tell me what in this world would keep you from wanting after that? What would you trade for it? Well, the religious leaders were willing to trade a large audience for it. They were willing to trade power, popularity, today, and devalue eternal life. And tell me that isn't the spirit of our age. So we value today. And we're like little two-year-olds who can't think beyond the hour to recognize that God has established us a salvation that is eternal. And it's time we started thinking about it and be disposed to valuing it, to desiring after it, uh, to acquire it, that this is something that I need to pursue in my life. I need to take whatever measures to, to uh, lay hold of it. And this is really what's wrapped up in this Greek word, and it involves a showing of a hand. Is is, is that I want that? <laughs> ooh, ooh, me! I'll take that. And that's really the the idea behind this word, and and we see it so poorly used. And and the contrast is is very plain in the context that what he is doing is setting the Gentile community's spirit and attitude towards valuing and, and wanting after and recognizing eternal life as something uh, wondrous to acquire uh, versus the religious leaders who simply threw it away. It wasn't worth anything to them. And this 
is this why we, we try to draw particularly our children's interests, but really we need to draw each other's interests out of the things of this world and don't let them get a hold of our hearts that this is what I chase after, that somehow the American dream is more valuable to me than eternity in the presence of God. How could you ever trade those two off? Because the American dream, i got to tell you, brethren, is a nightmare. It is. Just when you get it, it's gone. Eternal life is that which we need to be predisposed to, that we are of, of a peaked interest into it. And they saw it and they recognized that this offer of God for eternal life is not to be <laughs> discredited. It's not to be just uh, diminished in any way, but rather is to be laid hold of. So when the offer came, they were ready to jump on it is the idea behind this word. That while one thought themselves unworthy, that is, we're not interested in that, the other was disposed to recognizing the great value of what God offers. Forgiveness of sin would have been enough to be able to be justified by the sacrifice of Christ. That would be enough but it doesn't end there. There's even eternal life. There's eternity in God's presence that's being offered. It goes on. We've looked at the response of the messengers, the response to the word of the Lord, the response to the message, the response to eternal life, and the fifth area is the response to the mission. What became their mission? In verse 50, we find the mission of the unbelievers. The Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women. Again, we have religious people. These are devout. They're prominent. What do prominent people have in common with the leaders of the synagogue? They want a following after themselves. They're devout. They have the same religious interests not in relationship with God, but rather in the rituals and, the, and all the, the, their position in it. And then it says, and so not only the devout women, but the chief men of the city. They went after those and said, hey, you're, this is going to undermine your authority, which it wouldn't. But I can imagine that you know, th- these guys are going to have the whole city following after them. And it raised up again that same spirit that they had and they raised them up, and, and look what they led them to do. They raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, uh, so intense that they expelled them from their region. And so, in response, their mission became to start more opposition. What a wonderful job. And by the way, Paul knows all about that job. Why? It used to be his job. <laughs> he's, he's held that position before. And he knows how dissatisfying it is to be hunting people simply because they believe something different than you. That's why Paul's not so very quick to just write them off, as we're going to see really in Iconium perhaps next week. <laughs> um, but we find him uh, confronting them and their mission becomes this horrible mission of violence and of of hatred and of 
of envy and strife and, and evil. That becomes their mission. I want you to look at the mission of the believers. Those Gentiles who were glad and glorified God and realized the value of eternal life and believed, verse 49 says, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. The mission of these envious, blaspheming, opposing people who didn't value eternal life over the things of this world was to stir up strife, to stir up opposition, to stir up violence, to stir up hatred and anger, to stir up everything horrible within man. But the mission of those who had received this word, who recognized the value of eternal life, who were glad to receive the messengers of God, who glorified the word of God, is a, we can't keep this to ourselves. What were they spreading? They're spreading the hope of eternal life. They're spreading the grace of God. They're spreading this wonderful opportunity to have justification apart from the law. The law couldn't do it, but Jesus Christ can justify you, make you righteous. And not only that, then once you're righteous, you can spend eternity with Him. This is something I want to share. And they spread it throughout the whole region. The city of Antioch was too small to hold this message, just like the city of Jerusalem was. Just too small a place to keep this kind of a message and they went out with this mission, a totally different mission. One, missionaries of hate. The other one, missionaries of hope. And the dis- difference is they received the word. They received that word. They believed. Well, there's one final distinction I want to pull out here. the end, it says of verse 50, that the Jews expelled the apostles from their region. And by doing it, that really expelled hope. And it says the apostles did exactly what Jesus said to do. They want you gone. They push you out of town. They throw you out the door, uh, the gate of the city, and they say, don't come back. Um, This is what you do. You shake off the dust of your feet. And you leave them in despair. You leave them without that hope. They were expelled. They, they were removed by the choice of those who rejected their message. You rejected the word of God. And now, this is what you have. You essentially have despair. And without Christ in your life, that is all you have. You have expelled hope from your life. Because the law can't save you. You can't ever be good enough. Ever. And so you must trust in Christ or there is nothing to trust in. And they had expelled hope from their region. So Paul and Barnabas are kicked out of town. They shake the dust off from their feet against these ones who had expelled them. Went to the next town Verse 51. But I wanted to look in verse 52. Um, and to see the spirit of the believers left behind. So those who opposed this message, they expelled hope. 
But what did the believers have? Even with Paul and Barnabas kicked out of their town in a relatively short time, from what we can tell, it says verse 52, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The enemies of the cross are filled with hopelessness, despair. They have nothing but hate and envy and violence and anger. Because they're searching after the things of this world. They have devalued eternal life. And, and the gift of God has become nothing to them. They're blaspheming His name. And here are these believers who are recognizing now they have this new mission. They have this, this wonderful gift that God has given to them. They're glorifying the Word of God. They are filled with joy. While they're filled with envy, with hate, with violence, this pe- these people are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And just because your leaders were kicked out by the... Le- let me see. By your spiritual uh, parentage was kicked out of town by your social leadership doesn't rob you of joy. I think that is tremendous. We tend to connect our joy too much to our circumstances. But the real power of God's Word is that our joy is independent of those circumstances because we understand eternal life. That once we get a grasp of what God has set aside for us, the circumstances of life today, no matter how horrific they are, no matter how sad they may be, no matter how disappointing they are, that the circumstances of life, even when here these great men show up with this wonderful message for us, and it's brought us justification, it's brought us eternal life, and now our city has kicked them out. That's not robbing me of my joy. It can't, because my joy is in Jesus Christ and my salvation. And that no one can take away. No evil done against me by the world or anyone in it, by Satan himself, can rob me of that. Because he who promised it is faithful. And his promises are sure. And no one can take me out of his hand. And there's my joy. Will you face disappointments? Yes. Will people fail? Yes. Will evil be perpetrated against you in this age? Yes. But none of that can rob you of joy. Because none of that can rob you of eternal life. None of that can rob you of relationship with God. None of that can rob you of being made righteous. And so here we read verse 31, you know, that the apostles are leaving and, and the, shaking the dust off their feet against these people, which, which leaves them in a state of despair. And they're out of town. And you think the disciples would be sad and gloomy and, and, and disappointed or, or leaving with the apostles. But you don't find that to be the case. They're filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. Because their trust wasn't in Paul and Barnabas. Trust is in God. And the Spirit is the guarantee of their inheritance of eternal life. And they have valued it. They have predisposed themselves to it. And it is theirs now to possess. And none can take it from them. And this needs to fill us with joy. And brethren... We can be joyful in any circumstance if we remember to associate ourselves with the 
this half of the audience instead of that half of the audience. Yes? Oh, that we associate ourselves being glad for the messengers of God when they come, even when, it, when their messages repent, you dirty, rotten sinners. Be glad to receive them. Glad they came to you. Glorify the word of the Lord. Believe the message. Value eternal life. Oh, that we would associate ourselves with that and then commit ourselves to the mission of spreading the word to those around us, recognizing that our audience is going to respond just like Paul's audience. You're going to have those that are going to oppose you and hate you, but you're going to have those who are going to believe and accept. And they're too valuable to be cowards with the gospel. Paul and Barnabas, in their boldness, recognized the divisiveness of their message. That it was going to split the world into two distinct groups of people. They had nothing to do with language, had nothing to do with the color of their skin, had nothing to do with their economy, economic position, had nothing to do with their level of education, that the only two distinctions of value among men is are going to accept Christ or reject Him. Period. And this is the culture of God's Word. And so... My challenge to you is that we be associating ourselves with these people and in that condition we will experience what 52 records the church in Antioch, a church who kicked out the top two preachers in town violently. It's going to happen again in Iconium. They are still filled with joy, still have the Holy Spirit. I can still serve God no matter what sin has been perpetrated against me no matter what conditions and the hardships that have been that enforced upon us, they can't take away what God in His grace has given. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. We thank You again for a very uh, detailed report from the first sermon of Paul here recorded for us among the Gentiles and the Jews in the synagogue. And Lord, our prayer again, is that we would have that same boldness to share Christ with those around. But Lord, we understand. And we need you to strengthen us because we're going to have the same response. We're going to have a division. We're going to have those who hate and oppose us. They'll blaspheme you and reject you. And oftentimes we'll think it's us that they're hating and rejecting. But really, Lord, it's you. And it's eternal life that they are throwing away. Lord, keep us constant in prayer for them that they might have their hearts melted to turn from envy and hate and wickedness to gladness, glory, and belief. Lord, that we might share in this body with these who have believed. Lord, we thank you so much for that sure hope of returning your presence. We thank you so much for the righteousness that you've given to us through Jesus Christ that we could never deserve and never earn through any law. And Lord, pray, I pray that we might have constant before us this mission to spread that message to our region. 
may have constant before us the realization that nothing can rob us of our inheritance, therefore nothing can take our joy. And that your Spirit is with us wherever we go. For all these things, God cease to thank you. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Amen.